don't we take our Bibles and go together back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, where we left off last week. If you do need a Bible while we're turning there, the guys have a couple in the aisles. If you hold your hand up, they'd be happy to give you a copy of the Scriptures if you need one. Luke 24, and we pick back up here in verse 46. And this morning we're going to look at verse 46 down through verse 49 together. These words of Jesus as he's sort of giving a commission uh, here to his disciples. So if you're turned there together with me, shall we stand out of respect for the word of God as we read our passage of scripture this morning. Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Jesus says to the disciples gathered there, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And Father, we ask now for the assistance of your Holy Spirit as we open up the Word of God. Lord, you tell us that it's God-breathed, it's been inspired by your Spirit to be profitable for doctrine and reproof, correction and training in righteousness, that men and women of God like us might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Lord, we want our lives to be useful for you. Lord, we want to fulfill those good works that you foreordained in advance that we should walk in. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would instruct us, teach us. Lord, counsel us, correct us, guide us. And we pray that your spirit would prepare us to receive, help us to be attentive and alert to what you'd say. And we ask that your Holy Spirit be the one to help us to interpret the word of God and to teach us. Open up our understanding to comprehend these scriptures, we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how many of you would say this morning, if you were honest, that there have been times in your life where you found yourself maybe praying or just thinking through the thought in your own mind as a follower of the Lord, you know, I just really wish I knew what God wanted. I really wish I knew what God desires. I want to do what God desires. And, and, and so often one of the most, I think, repeated questions I hear from a pastoral ministry standpoint that we all ask at times as Christians is, what's the will of God for my life? And what does God want me to do? What does God's desire and intention for me involve and include? Well, you know, one thing the Bible is very clear about, and 1 Timothy chapter 2 just tells it to us directly, there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says that God our Savior, and take note of that, God our Savior, that our God is also the Savior. God our Savior, it says, desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So that is pretty clearly stated if you want to talk about Christianity for dummies or or what is God's will for dummies. Well, the Bible is pretty clear. One thing God desires is that all people would be saved. We know that is the desire of God and that all people would come to the knowledge, the understanding of the truth. 
of what the truth of God is in relation to salvation. And in Jesus' words that we're looking at together this morning, you see right here in Jesus' brief words to his disciples, God's plan, I think, God's plan for reaching out and rescuing a sinful world. Jesus makes it evident here in these four verses that we'll look at together that something had to be accomplished by a savior and God came in the person of his son Jesus Christ to be that savior one God one mediator between God and man the Bible says and that is the man Christ Jesus being fully God and fully man simultaneously that he might build the bridge and mediate between God and sinful humanity by doing what Jesus Christ did and so Jesus had to accomplish something as our Savior. And Jesus makes reference to that there clearly in verse 46. Secondly, we'll also see that people then must be presented the opportunity to respond to the Lord. People need to understand and have the opportunity, the information, the awareness, and even know that they have a human responsibility to respond to God in relation to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thirdly, we'll see as well that Jesus' intention is clearly to use people to share the truth. That's the primary MO or method of operation that God and his son Jesus Christ intend whereby the gospel message would be spread on this planet is by using people, witnesses, to reach out and to testify to the truth of other people who need the same salvation. And lastly, we'll see there in verse 49 that we cannot do God's work apart from God's power. That we need the power of God and the enabling of God in order to accomplish what God has asked us to do. Now, as we come into these verses, again, let us remind ourselves we're in this section now of a period of time in which after Jesus has risen from the dead, prior to his ascension, which we'll see in our remaining verses next week together, and the Bible tells us that there was a 40-day period after Jesus rose from the dead before he ascended up back into heaven from whence he came at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus, we've been watching, has been making a few appearances to assure his followers that he is indeed alive from the dead. We saw that in our study together last week as Jesus showed up in the midst of the disciples, spoke to them, and then even revealed to them the reality that their hearts did not need to be troubled. And he showed them, remember, his resurrected body, his glorified eternal body of which you and I will have as well. And he said, behold, my hands, my feet, it's I myself, it's me, guys, look. And he said, touch me, handle me. See the nail prints and, and recognize it's me. It is true. I've risen out from among the dead. And he demonstrated the fact that he was alive to his disciples. And then verse 44 and 45, Jesus said to them, These are the words I spoke to you while still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me and then we read he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures so jesus opened up their understanding so they could see therefore how all of what happened with his life his suffering his crucifixion his resurrection all these things that they were all part of god's preordained plan and that the Bible that they had at that point, the Old Testament, foretold all these things specifically. And Jesus was just fulfilling everything that was foretold. And he enabled them supernaturally to make this connection of who he was as the Christ or the Messiah 
and to be able to understand why he did what he did. Because within a very short period of time, as I said, Jesus would then be ascending back into heaven, back to the throne of God at the right hand of the Father. His mission on earth had been completed and he was going to return back from whence he came. And Jesus, understand, he was on earth for a season, but it was a set season whereby he might reveal God to man in the flesh and whereby he might most importantly accomplish the eternal plan of redemption and now that that is done he will ascend back to the right hand of the father but and this is very important his ministry would continue upon the earth his ministry would not cease acts 1 says all of what jesus luke the writer of acts sells the writer here of the gospel of luke acts 1 luke says all that jesus began to do and to teach is what i wrote about in my gospel the indication being jesus is still doing things and jesus is still teaching the difference is is now jesus is not here in a physical body present among us jesus has ascended back to the right hand of the father and now through the presence of the body of christ Spirit-filled believers indwelt with the resurrected Spirit of Christ living within us. We are now the ones whereby Jesus intends still to continue to do his ministry on this earth. So we have Jesus now in these verses commissioning his disciples what their role and responsibility is and how they would now take the baton and reach the world for him. And he speaks of things which were and are still necessary for this to happen look with me again back in verse 46 we begin to look at his instructions he's speaking to the disciples relating to this saying thus it is written and thus it was necessary key word for the christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day so jesus reminds the disciples that it was necessary that he accomplish what he did as the promised Christ. And again, remember, when you read that word Christ there in the Bible, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. A lot of people think Jesus Christ, you know, Tony Montemiro. It's not his last name. The word Christ is a title. It's not a name. It's Christos. It is the term in the Greek that's used to represent the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Old Testament promised Savior and Deliverer that God said that he would send to humanity. So when we read the word Christ, it's a reference to the title of Jesus as God's Savior, as God's Messiah, the one he sent to reach and to save the world from their sin. And God, notice, wanting to assure of his reliability, God wanting to validate that he is credible and worthy to be trusted, took the time, wanting humanity to believe, God took the time and the endeavor to write out quite extensively in the Old Testament scriptures what the Christ would do, what he would perform, how he would come, what he would accomplish. So God writes out in the Old Testament scriptures what the Christ would fulfill, and it's all written and recorded hundreds of years before Jesus the Christ ever came to this planet to fulfill that the Old Testament described how the Christ would be a suffering Savior and how he would be a victorious Lord and therefore it was necessary Jesus reminds us again here for him to accomplish what was written of him for two reasons one to obediently fulfill what the word of God said about him it is statistically, mathematically off the charts 
that a human being could come into this world and fulfill over 300 specific predictions the way in which Jesus of Nazareth, who was Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, came into our world and fulfilled perfectly over 300 plus predictions and prophecies of exactly all of what would happen with his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and so forth. But yet Jesus came to do that, and it just validates all the more the credibility of God and the credibility of who Jesus Christ indeed was. And secondly, Jesus did such because he wanted to achieve what was necessary for sinful man to be reconciled to God. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 46 here. He says the Old Testament predicted, first of all, that the Christ, notice, that the Christ had to suffer. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And the Old Testament had that written. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, these passages spoke of that. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6. Let me read it to you regarding the Christ, the Messiah. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the idea is the punishment for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, the reason Jesus had to suffer was to righteously pay for the penalty that the sins that all of us as humanity commit against a holy God. It says every one of us has gone our own way and Jehovah God has laid on him on Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He was bruised, he suffered, he paid the penalty. Sin against a holy and just God, let us never forget, it must be punished. God cannot just wink at sin. Okay, God is not like a over-gracious and even over-loving parent who can just excuse wrong. God is a just, holy God. Again, if, if a crime were committed and somebody did certain things and they went before the judge and the judges said, you know what, I just, I'm in a really good mood today, so just don't worry about it. I just, I mean, yeah, just, I'll let you, that's not a good judge. That's not a just judge anyway. That's not a righteous judge because crimes come with penalties. It, that is the just and right way in which things work. And the same way, God is a holy and a just God. And therefore, God can't just ignore, even in his love, he can't compromise his holiness and compromise his justice and righteousness because he's so loving. He can't do that because he can't compromise his nature. God is love. God is light. And he must remain both at the same time. But God came up with a wonderful plan whereby he so loved this world, he sent his only begotten son to take the punishment, to pay the penalty and to receive what we deserve for our sin because there needed to be just punishment for sin. But Jesus comes in the love of God to step in and take our place and he suffers and is crucified and he dies and experiences death to satisfy the demands of God's righteous judgment against the sin of all of us. That's why Jesus says here the Christ had to suffer. It had to happen for the just wrath of God to be satisfied against all of our failures and sins and mistakes. He says also in verse 46 that the Old Testament also predicted that Jesus, the Christ, would rise from the dead as well. Again, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, particularly verses 10 and 11, spoke of the fact 
that the Messiah would raise from the dead. And the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead indicates that he was satisfied with his sacrifice for sin. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Again, to be justified means to be acquitted as not guilty. And the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead indicates very clearly that Jesus rose, that God is satisfied, that what Jesus did was sufficient. Nothing else need to be done. Jesus died on the cross. He put out his arms and he said, it is finished. Nothing else need be done. And when God raised him from the dead the third day, it's almost as if God from heaven said, amen. It is finished. And the father raised him from the dead and said, amen. It is finished. I validate that. I receive him and what he did and God receives him back into heaven and it's satisfied the terms of what sin has caused among us. Jesus' resurrection from the dead also provides for us other things as well, like the power to overcome sin's control in our life. Because in the same way that Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says that we can walk in newness of life. It's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is all about. It's about the fact that sin doesn't have to have dominion over us. That that resurrection spirit of Christ and power of Christ's resurrection can help us overcome sin in our own lives. And we can walk differently once we come to Jesus. His resurrection also promises us eternal life after death. Again, 1 John 5 tells us that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So Jesus had to suffer and Jesus also had to, it was necessary, rise from the dead for these reasons. And what he's accomplished, Jesus is impressing upon them in verse 46 here. He says, these things were necessary. They were needful. They were required, the ideas. They were essential. That's why Jesus proclaimed what he did so confidently in John 3, 16 to 18. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So th there were things that Jesus had to accomplish. It was necessary. And our world needs to understand that. Our world needs to realize that certain things are spiritual realities about God and about us, and our world needs to hear that. They need to understand that. And in light of what Jesus accomplished, the disciples needed to share with the world what Jesus had performed and what he had accomplished. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, therefore, it was also necessary, he says, now that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So take notice, Jesus instructs the disciples that people on the earth need to be presented an opportunity to respond to God. God did all that is necessary. Jesus made all the plans and preparations for us to receive forgiveness of sins and assurance of eternal life after we die and power to overcome sin from controlling and dominating and ruining our lives. But Jesus emphasizes to these disciples, listen, he says, 
what I have accomplished is wonderful. And it's, it was essential. And it is now freely available to be partaken of and benefited from by everyone. But people have to become aware of it. They need to hear about it. They need to understand in the same way. Imagine if, if you discovered the cure for something like cancer. And imagine somebody discovering the cure for cancer and then never telling anyone about it. It would be absurdity. Listen, our world is sick with cancerous sin. And it's spreading. And cancer spreads and kills the victim. And, and, and our world is plagued with a terminal spiritual disease. It's called sin. And Jesus says, therefore, look, what I have done makes something freely available. Yet he says people have to hear about it. They have to have the opportunity to respond and understand what's available and what's expected. And this happens, Jesus tells the disciples, and you and I hear it happens through the preaching and proclaiming of a message. He said, this must be preached in his name to all nations. Now, I am absolutely certain, if you're anything like me, typically when some of us hear the word preach, you automatically envision something. Some of you wonderfully may envision someone like Billy Graham, a, a man, a faithful servant of God, maintained his integrity, stood away from all the shenanigans and things that often happen in the church and the body of Christ and faithfully ran his course and the man preached the gospel until the day that he was no longer fit. Wonderful example. Other of us hear the word preach and maybe we envision something like what we see on television sometimes. Some guy in a polyester suit and a slicked hairdo and walking around and making weird inflections with his voice and, and, and acting in ways that we kind of go, this guy is weird. And, and some of us, that's what we envision. Or maybe you picture somebody like on a boardwalk with a loud megaphone yelling into it, repent or perish. And, and, you're all, and, and we envision all kinds of different things. Listen, the word preach simply indicates to proclaim. It's a word that means to herald or announce. It was a word that described what a servant or ambassador of a king would do as they would be sent out into the kingdom. They would go out and in the name of the king they would make an announcement. And they would herald the news. Again, Jesus has preached in his name. The idea is as a representative of him, it's his message. It's his decree. It, it's what he wants to communicate. And all we are doing is bringing a message on behalf of our king. It's something that any of us can do. You don't need to stand behind a, a, a wooden box. I'll tell you something. It's easier to stand behind a wooden box in the midst of God's people and speak about spiritual things than it is to stand in front of another human being and to just honestly share the truth with them sometimes. To preach, to proclaim the word of God, don't get the wrong idea, simply means that we convey a message on behalf of our king and the response to that message is between the person and the king. It's not between us and them. We're just bringing the news. We're just announcing what is true. And what is the message Jesus says we are to preach and proclaim? Very simply, he says in verse 47, it is the need for two things. Repentance from sin and remission or forgiveness of sin. Repentance from sin and remission of sin. Jesus wants people to know a response to what he has accomplished is necessary. Please hear that. 
He wants people to know that a response is necessary. This gospel message is something that must be responded to. It is either received or it is rejected. In the same way, if the king issues a decree about his kingdom, whatever that decree may be, you either submit and respond to the king's decree or you reject it, you disregard it, and you rebel against it. In the same way, people need to understand that the gospel message is something that God asks a response in relation to. They have a responsibility before God. And people need to honestly understand that. Our message is to instruct people of the need for, first of all, repentance. Jesus says repentance from sin. That word repent there is metanoia in the Greek. It means a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. That's the term he uses there, a change of mind, which results, therefore, in a change of behavior. Not just saying, yeah, I ought to change. Yeah, I ought to lose some weight. Yeah, I ought to stop. And just continuing to do it. That's not repentance. Repentance has nothing to do, quite honestly, with what we say. Repentance has to do with a change of mind that has been made that results then in a change of behavior. It has an effect. It is something that indicates a conscious choice to change our direction and go the opposite way. It means that we willingly admit we have been wrong. Very hard for us as human beings. We don't like to admit that. We willingly admit we are wrong. We have been going the wrong way. We've been living the wrong way. We've been thinking the wrong way. It means we admit that we're wrong and then we choose to therefore turn around and go the opposite way and to do the right thing, to decide to change our course and do what's right. And the unsaved person, Jesus says, must understand and choose to do this in response to God. The person who is unconverted as not yet except Jesus needs to realize that their life of sin, of living self-governed, of basically uh, being self-indulgent and living apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ is wrong. And no matter how good they feel about themselves in comparison to the rest of the world, they need to know your self-governed, self-indulgent life of living in sin apart from Jesus Christ is wrong. You're wrong and you're living in error. And they need to recognize that reality and turn from that way and turn from being the Lord of their own life and living the way that they want to and instead to turn toward Jesus and to follow him and to let him be the Lord of their life. Remember, repentance must be a part of the salvation experience. True saving faith. And I emphasize the word saving faith. Saving faith recognizes I'm a sinner Jesus is a savior and therefore I have been living in sin apart from a savior. I need to be rescued and I need him therefore to save me. So I need to turn away from my sin and turn to the one who can forgive me and save me from my sin. Saving faith will produce repentance as a part of the conversion experience. When someone gets saved, genuinely saved, they will turn from a life of error from serving themselves and living in sin and they will turn instead from something to something. From sin to serving God. Listen to how Paul described the conversion experience of the Thessalonian believers. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Paul says regarding their salvation, he says, you turned to God from idols 
to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers from the dead. Again, take notice of the language. Regarding their salvation experience, he says, you turned to God from idols. What's idol? An idol is a false god. It's worshiping something else. And he says, you turned to God from your error and from your idols. That's what conversion involves. Jesus spoke often when you read the Gospels regarding the need for repentance. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said, that's what I came for. I came to help people understand that they're not righteous, that none of us are righteous, no, not one, and that we need to be turned to God. He says, I came to call sinners, those who realize they're sinners, to repentance, to that change whereby they turn to God. In Matthew 4, verse 17, as soon as Jesus begins to preach, his very first message is this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. First word out of Jesus' mouth when he preached was repent, turn, turn away from sin and self, turn to God and embrace the king that's coming. The Bible shows us of the important connection of repentance and the conversion of a soul. Second Peter 3, 9 says this, God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, I emphasize this this morning because it is imperative for me, for you, when we talk to our friends, when we have an opportunity to maybe share with our family or we talk to somebody in our job or in the world, it's important that we do not think it's somehow wrong or offensive. Listen, it is right to let people understand that, yes, God is asking for repentance. We must communicate to people the reality that they need to repent. That was the message of the early church. Let us not stray from that. Peter, when he preached in Acts chapter 3 before the multitude, said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And again, genuine saving faith that realizes I'm a sinner and I've been living sinfully against God. Genuine saving faith says, Therefore, I believe what I need to do is to turn away from my sin and to receive God forgiveness and to let the Savior save me and to receive the forgiveness of his sins my mind belief in what he says and who he is secondly Jesus also shows in verse 47 here that the message we're to share is not only to include repentance from sin but he also adds in there remission of sins and again what is sin sin is anything we do that displeases God thought word deed anything that displeases God and the Bible says that we are all guilty of such things, that we all sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, the whole world is guilty before God. And Jesus says here how wonderfully that we are to let people know about remission of sins, forgiveness of sins, your Bible say. That word remission that Jesus uses there means to release from bondage, to set at liberty from imprisonment. That's the term he uses there. And what a fitting term in relation to sin because our sin puts us in a guilty position before a holy and a just God. And as a result of that, we justly deserve to be punished. As sinners, we justly deserve to be punished and to be banished to hell. We deserve eternal damnation. 
That is what's right and what is just, to be imprisoned in hell for eternity. Yet, the good news is that Jesus' work on the cross and his blood that was shed has provided a means whereby freely now we can be forgiven remission we can be released from the sentence that we deserve eternally we can be set at liberty from the punishment that is due to us jesus has provided a way to be liberated from our guilt and our shame and our regrets that our sin and he says i have come that you may be remitted you may be forgiven and set free from that to be liberated from that and how by simply believing in faith alone and by receiving freely the gift of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And again, this is something not just that we, hear me, that we can do, it's something we must do. It's not just, wow, well that sounds really... No, it's something we must do. And if we don't do it, we will not be saved. We must recognizing ourselves as a sinner, realizing Jesus is the Savior, there must come a time in every human being's life before their last breath is breathed where they, understanding these things, choose to acknowledge their sinfulness before a holy God they've sinned against and they receive forgiveness for their sins because if they die in their sins, they will be damned to the place of eternal punishment that their sins justly deserve. It's essential. Not just something we can do. It's something we must do. That's why Jesus says we must let people know these things, that they must understand remission of sins and repentance. This is what Jesus says people need to hear about, the realities, so they can respond to it. They have to grasp these things. And in a desperate and dying world, despite the generation that we live in, this is the message this is the message. Not follow Jesus and have a fun, happy life. The message that people need to hear Jesus says is that we are sinful, we all fail, we have regrets and shame, and God in his love has made a way to take away the stains and the errors and the failures of our lives and to forgive us that Jesus might be a part of our life and to give us the hope of eternal life. Jesus says this is what people need to hear in every generation. God, help us not to begin to diminish the truths of what New Testament Christianity are and what the genuine gospel message is because we want to keep people happier or draw bigger crowds somehow. Listen, gang, anybody can draw a crowd. Hitler drew a crowd. And not for the right reason. We need to tell people in love and in truth the realities of what Jesus told us we are to tell people. That is our responsibility. And Jesus says here, people need the opportunity to hear and respond. They need to have this awareness. And note the scope and the approach. Jesus says the scope is that we are to preach these things to all nations. To all nations. The idea is a universal message. It's a great commission to make disciples, Matthew 28 says, of all nations, all people groups. This is a universal message on the planet God once spread. And the approach, Jesus says here in verse 47, notice, is beginning at Jerusalem. Preach this to all nations, and then he emphasizes they're beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city and the location where the disciples currently were. It was where they were 
at that time. So they were to begin sharing this message at their current location first. And after saturating where they currently were, Acts chapter 1 says, then they were to then expand outward to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Again, let us take notice here. Jesus' pattern for reaching the world is that we start sharing and proclaiming the truths of God right where we are at. Right where we're at. That's where we're to begin at. Being faithful in our Jerusalem. Your family. Your sphere of friends. Your co-workers. Your neighborhood. Our community. Jesus says right there in your Jerusalem. That's where we're to begin to saturate with the truths of God and the gospel. And then from there, he says, you begin to expand outward after you've faithfully sought to minister right where you're at, beginning in your own Jerusalem. And Jesus emphasizes that his intention for evangelism, notice verse 48, was to use people who experienced salvation to share those things with others who need to hear about it. He says to the disciples, and you are witnesses of these things things you are witnesses again what is a witness a witness is someone who sees and hears something firsthand themselves they literally experience something for example if you've ever been in an auto accident i have or if you've ever witnessed an auto accident what if you're a witness to an auto accident it means what you actually saw it firsthand you heard and experienced it literally yourself you're not getting secondhand information you're a witness. You witnessed it and experienced it yourself. And then a witness also is someone who can then tell and share the truth with validity because of the fact that they experienced it personally. And the disciples were, Jesus tells them, and you and I as his followers today are witnesses of Jesus. We now are witnesses in the world. Jesus says this is how effectively sharing the gospel is primarily supposed to happen. It's primarily supposed to happen as born-again Christians, people who've experienced Jesus' salvation firsthand in our own lives, we then become witnesses and demonstrate the truths of salvation by the representation of our life and the validity of the testimony that we can share of what we experienced. Which means that as a born-again Christian, my life should reflect to the world repentance. People should see that I'm a changed man. They should see that you're a changed woman, that you're not the same person that you once were. They should see that there has been repentance. You've turned from one way to live differently. And our lives should also represent forgiveness, that we understand that we're sinners and that we appreciate the fact that Jesus has forgiven us. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, that is what makes us have a credible witness to the world around us. That's what makes our testimony have validity as people get to see our lives and get to know us. Even before we have to say anything, people say, you know what? Something's, there's been an experience in this person's life. I don't understand, but I can tell. They're not the same person they were. And, and, and they've experienced something firsthand and they seem to have a humility to understand that they're an imperfect, sinful person and they seem to really appreciate Jesus and his salvation in their life and see it as that validity that earns us then the right, the privilege to share the gospel with people with credibility because we're just witnesses as a repentant sinner, a forgiven sinner 
of another person who needs to experience the exact same thing as we did. And Jesus makes it clear that we are divinely mandated to be effective witnesses. It's our commission. He tells them here in verse 47 and 48, listen, this is your commission from me. And let us never forget that this morning, by the will of the Lord, we are commissioned to do this in our world. Now, our world may tell us we're not supposed to talk about such things. They may try and silence us. They may say, look, you're invading our right to privacy and and please don't say... And, And they may act offended like we're violating their privacy. But to not share the gospel of Jesus Christ is violating a commission from the Lord. To not communicate to people about Jesus is offending Jesus with our disobedience. How many times I hang my head with the reality that I often care more about making people happy than I do caring about the eternal destiny of their soul. And how many times are we guilty of being more concerned about having people's approval than having the Lord's approval? And listen, I am not by any means endorsing being obnoxious, being offensive, and irritating to people in the world. There are people that do that in the name of Jesus, and you know what? It's stupid. And it makes it more difficult for the rest of us who are trying to wisely, lovingly, and sensitively share the gospel at the right opportunities. But that being said, I think we should use sensitivity and love and wisdom, but let us be careful not to use excuses that we often put forth in our heart and mind for why we're not sharing the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And Jesus has commissioned us to do this very thing. Look with me in verse 49. He then says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Notice, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So lastly, notice in relation to these things, Jesus instructs the disciples that they need what? Supernatural enablement in order to accomplish his work and his calling that he has just given to them. Think with me, if you would, just for a moment. Consider what Jesus just commissioned these disciples to fulfill. To take a message and to spread it around the entire world, preaching a message of repentance from sin and remission, and to spread it all over the globe. And think about who he's giving this responsibility to. The disciples? They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're, they're, they're those who are you know, zealous uh, you know, against the, the government of Rome and, 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 and people who, John, we believe, was just a young teenager. My point is this. These men who he's giving this calling to are utterly insufficient. This task is so far beyond their capability. There's no way that they on their own would have the ability or capability to do such a grand task and they lack courage. We know from the other gospels at this point they're hiding away in fear. They're afraid for their lives at this point. They're shaking their boots of what's going to happen to them if they even get caught as a follower of Jesus, let alone trying to tell people about Jesus. And that is why Jesus tells them to wait until they're empowered before they begin. That's why Jesus here, interesting, notice the language. He tells them to go forth. He even instructs them what to do in their ministry. But then he says, but you must wait before you go. He says, go, but wait before you do. Wait, he says, because you need to be prepared by receiving power from on high. He says, I'm going to send the promise of my Father upon you. 
And we know that Jesus there was referring to what would happen in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit of God was poured out at Pentecost upon these believers for enablement to serve the Lord. And this was something that was promised by God in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44.3, God says, I will pour my spirit upon your descendants. Zechariah 4, God told Zerubbabel in relation to his ministry, not by might or by human power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Again, we all know Joel chapter 2 where God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. The idea is speak the word of God. And Jesus says, what my father has promised is about to take place and you have to wait for it for the promise of my father to come upon you. Now, the reference Jesus makes here to the outpouring of the spirit is not regarding the spirit of God entering or indwelling the believer at conversion. When we get saved and accept Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that we're sealed with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters inside of us and He then begins to conform us into the image of Jesus. Jesus is talking about something that involves the Spirit coming upon them, being poured out upon their lives to enable them and empower them for service in the things of the Lord. They're calling in ministry clearly given, but Jesus says, listen, you have to wait until you receive power to accomplish such things. And we know from the book of Acts, chapter 1, how they waited. They waited by spending time together in prayer. And in seeking God together in prayer, they were waiting until... As it says here, Jesus says they were then endued with power from on high. The language indicates to be clothed with power. It speaks of waiting for an experience of having God's power from heaven come upon one's life to enable them for their service and work in the things of God. They had to be anointed with power from heaven, clothed with power from on high. Again, envision, if you can illustrate in your mind, like a soldier. Before they go out to battle, if they're going to be victorious, they first have to be equipped with what they need to go out and be victorious. In the same way, in this spiritual warfare of souls, Jesus says the servant of the Lord has to be clothed, has to be equipped with power from heaven in order to be victorious in service. In fact, that word power there that Jesus uses is where we then get our English word dynamite. Now that's interesting to me. Think for a moment. Think about dynamite. Dynamite does what? It causes tremendous change and incredible impact when it's used for its purpose. And I think Jesus here is saying, look, to the disciples, to you and I, there is a dynamic of God's spirit that must come upon our lives. And when it does, just like the effects of dynamite, we will begin to serve the Lord with a dynamic enablement whereby what we do will produce changes in people's lives. Like dynamite, it will produce incredible changes in people's lives. And what we do will have a strong impact as the result of what we're doing because this endowment or clothing of the power of the Spirit will be upon our lives. Jesus would speak of this often. Acts chapter 1, he spoke of it there again. He said, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days 
from now. He then said down in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power, same word, dynamite, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when we study the book of Acts, these feeble, weak, insufficient disciples who Jesus turns the keys of the kingdom over to, to share the gospel and spread it around the world, when they were filled with the power of the Spirit and the Spirit of God came upon their lives, the baptism of the Spirit, as the Bible calls it, as Jesus uses those same words, when this experience happened to them, what happens? Read the book of Acts. They preached with boldness. And they were effective. And they began to accomplish things for the Lord and that experience continued to happen in their lives. Later on in Acts chapter 4, again it says they were praying and it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And again, please notice, Jesus, it says here, is the baptizer. Jesus says here, you wait, he says, until you're endued with power from on high. He says, I will send the promise upon your life. And you know what? When God makes a promise, he keeps it. And we are just as needful as these individuals were. Certainly, they walked with Jesus for three years. They literally experienced his ministry. How much more do you and I need the power of heaven from on high upon our lives to be effective for the Lord? Hey, this morning, can I ask you, how has your current witness been for the Lord? What kind of witness have you been? in our world, in your little sphere of influence, in your Jerusalem. Where have you been putting your efforts at? Can I encourage you to remember ministry begins right where you're at. Stop envisioning the grandiose thing, oh, I can't wait till I go to Africa and get a, to be a famous... Mi Listen, right where you're at. Right where you're at. With your family, with your friends, with your sphere of influence. Right in your Jerusalem. Pray, look for opportunities, ask for boldness to share with people. That the Lord would give you opportunity to share the gospel message. It's so important for our lives. Again, maybe again this morning you're saying, Oh, I just wish I knew what God's will was for my life. I wish I knew, I want to do God's will. I wish I knew what God's will was for my life. Can I help you? Right there in front of you is a clear indication of God's will for your life. God's will for your life and for my life is to be sharing with people about Jesus and his salvation talking with people about what he wants to share with them and we need to be waiting on the Lord seeking the Lord in prayer saying Lord I can't do it alone I'm intimidated I'm nervous Lord would you pour out the power of your spirit upon my life that I might receive what I need to serve you effectively why don't we stand we'll pray together